Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we truly depend on you in order to bring this resource to you. If you don't already support us financially, you could do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see our three friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Click on one of them and fill that out. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, December 16th, 2020. Now, as promised, we're going to do some lab work today. We've taken a look at what the biblical text regarding where to hear the voice of God, how to hear the voice of God. We've done a little bit of lab work along the way by you know, pointing out particular teachings and doctrines put forward by specific people. Now we're going to do a full-blown sermon review as part of the course. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, (gasps) self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex is those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that's put forward for consumption by the evangelical church and by so many preachers and teachers, it's far from biblical, far from what God's Word says, there's just a whole lot of deceiving going on out there. All right, so let we, we've, we've kind of s- set up the table a little bit. And what I want to do before we get into the sermon review proper, I, I'd like to review kind of some basics of biblical discernment, some general rules that I have been operating under for a long, long, long time in the history of the podcast of Fighting for the Faith and uh, and and you know and now our YouTube channel and uh, and now these new endeavors that we're engaging. In. in fact, those of you listening to the audio version of the podcast, I want you to know there's a video version of this. Same text. You can see my face. You can see my reactions. But you can also see the false teacher on the screen. You can see my Bible and stuff like that. And the way you access these exclusive podcast-only videos is to go to fightingforthefaith.com and find the corresponding video that goes along with it. In fact, every episode now has a video version and an audio version. I, th- I think you get the idea. So let's let's uh, shall we head uh, head over to my desktop, and that's going to require me to whirl this up. And uh, let's go over to my web browser, and I've prepared a little 
uh, presentation kind of talking about the basics of biblical discernment. Th- these are by no means an exhaustive list, but these are general principles that uh, I operate under. And I think you'll see that this kind of all makes sense. But being put together in this way and then reviewed with some frequency, I think might be helpful for some of you uh, in the Fighting for the Faith audience. So basics of biblical discernment, kind of general rules, if you would. General rule number one, if a doctrine is not biblical, uh, a doctrine is not biblical unless the Bible clearly teaches that doctrine. Okay, you're sitting there going, that seems a little redundant and like, no duh. Okay, but here's the thing, is that uh, as silly as this might sound, as basic as it is, I mean, in order for a doctrine to be biblical, it has to be taught in the Bible? Right. How many Christians out there today are being taught by doctrines that are nowhere found in the scriptures? So a uh, doctrine is not biblical unless the Bible clearly teaches that doctrine. At that point, it becomes man-made. It becomes a doctrine of demon, uh, demons, you know, things like this. So, so uh, if you want your sermons to be biblical, you know what? They need to be biblical. <laughs> kind of by definition, but you have to say that nowadays. All right, next rule. Uh, so the, the other idea then here is that Clear passages are going to always govern unclear passages. One of the things that people do is they uh, they take unclear passages and try to obliterate clear passages with them. For instance, I'll give you an exa- example. Have you ever s- had a conversation with a friend or a relative and the conversation goes something like this? The Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. Uh, to engage in homosexual practices is a sin. And what do they say? Well, do you eat shellfish and lobster? You sit there and go, yeah. Well, the Bible forbids that too. So therefore, homosexuality is okay. You sit there and go, huh, what? (laughs) Okay, so what they've done is they've taken an off-topic text that has nothing to do with sexual morality at all, uh, one that actually has to do with our relationship to the Mosaic Covenant, which is a totally different topic altogether, and used it to obliterate a clear passage of Scripture, many clear passages of Scripture in both the Old Testament and New Testament. So here's the idea. Clear passages always govern unclear, and off-topic texts do not get to overturn on-topic texts. You know, th- these are general rules that I work from. Next rule is if the doctrine is not found in the scripture, it must be rejected. So keep that in mind. So, you, you, and, and one of the things I always tell people, listen, don't listen to me or watch me with an open mind. I do not need you to give me the benefit of the doubt. I am nobody special. I am a messed up sinner like yourself, and I am capable of error. And, uh, you know, and strong error at that. So you always fact check me. Always read with an open Bible, not with an open mind. Or listen with an open mind, uh, open Bible, not an open mind. That's the idea. So that, that being the case then, if I ever teach you a doctrine that is not actually found in the scripture, you, you must reject it. It doesn't matter how handsome I am. <clears throat> that was a joke, by the way. All right, next. If uh, the doctrine contradicts clear passages of scripture, it must be rejected. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if somebody says, well, you're not saved by what Christ has done, you have to save yourself by your obedience to the law. 
You can sit there and go, no, scripture contradicts that, so that's a doctrine that must be rejected. So those are kind of general rules I, uh, in order to, that I work from. And then in order for a sermon to be biblically sound, because this is a sermon is the normal place that people are being taught doctrines. And you sit and they go, well, I don't like the word doctrine. That's an old-fashioned word, and doctrine divides. Yes, doctrine does divide. It's supposed to. And anybody who's teaching you anything is teaching you doctrine because doctrine is just a fancy word for teaching. You got it? It's the content of what's being taught. So in order for a sermon to be biblically sound, here's number one. It must accurately convey the meaning of, of a text or passage. That means your pastor is going to have to study and show himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who can rightly, and the Greek word is hard to pull over into English. We'll just say rightly divide, rightly handle the word of truth. Yeah, I know you KJV only people out there just weeping and gnashing your teeth. I did a whole video on this. Yeah, the Greek governs, not the King James. Anyway, must accurately convey the meaning of a biblical text. Now, where we get this concept from, by the way, uh, Nehemiah. uh, In Nehemiah chapter 8, so after uh, Nehemiah has come back into Jerusalem, the exiles have been released from Babylon. uh, They're rebuilding the walls of the city. After that, they actually had the reading of the Bible uh, for the people there in Jerusalem. And we read uh, these details. I won't read all of the names here because there are a lot of names, but you'll get the gist of the passage. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that Yahweh had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. And uh, both men and women, all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Right. So then it talks about how Ezra, uh, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform. And by the way, this is this is the the genesis of of the concept we talk about as a pulpit. Okay, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and then goes on to list the other people who were present. But in particular, verse eight is the interesting one, and it relates to what we're talking about here. So they read from the book of the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So a pastor's job is to preach the word. And like uh, the, in the time of Nehemiah, you know, they gave the proper sense of what was being read and read from it clearly. That's the job of a pastor. That's their job, preach the word, to teach the word correctly. So when somebody's twisting it, that's a bad thing. So uh, a sermon must accurately convey the meaning of a text or a passage, which means that the pastor must demonstrate that he's done his homework, is rightly exegeting the passage, and not and not bringing any new doctrines to us. All right, next general rule here then, uh, it must not twist the scriptures. And you sit there and go, I know that seems kind of basic, but I have to say that nowadays because of how bad things have gotten. Uh, in second... Peter, let's see here. I'm going to uh, duplicate this tab. In 2 Peter 3, uh, you can see Peter talking about the importance of this and how some people really damage themselves and others when they twist the scriptures. Uh, so here's what it says. Uh, 2 Peter 3, I'll start in verse 14. By the way, uh, the reason why 
uh, you know, if I go back here where it says it must accurately convey the meaning of a text or passage, this is where the three rules for sound biblical exegesis come in. Context, context, context. And then you'll, you'll note that when you rip uh, passages out of context, that's when you begin to twist scriptures. Now, it's possible to actually take a passage out of context and rightly convey what it means. Uh, but it's harder to do that, and uh, and so you got to be careful in those things. And you can always fact check by again applying the three rules for exegesis, which are context, context, and context. So coming back then to our text here, uh, Peter writes, uh, "Beloved, uh, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Christ without spot or blemish, and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him." as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, and this is true, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, you'll know Peter believes that what Paul wrote, all of his letters are scripture. True. And he warns then about the ignorant and unstable people who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. So the idea then here is in order for a sermon to be biblically sound, it must not twist the scriptures because that's the behavior of the ignorant and the unstable. Uh, you, you get the idea. And then it must make a proper distinction between the law and the gospel and must not use the law unlawfully. Now, let me kind of show you the nugget of this that I reference. And uh, let's see, I think it's over here. First Timothy 8, uh, 1.8. Uh, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. All right. So we learn from Scripture, and I'm giving you a summary here. We learn from Scripture there are really kind of three valid uses of the law of God. Uh, And the law of God was never given so that you can obey it and save yourself. That's not the reason why it was given. So three valid uses are the first use of the law is the use really used by the government. It defines what's good and evil so that for the purpose of the government um, punishing the evildoer. That that's the idea. So it, it you know first use of the law is the civic use. God, you know, you know, governments use it to punish evildoers. This is why uh, murderers and thieves often find themselves in prison for long periods of time. You, you get the idea here. Second use of the law is the use mentioned in uh, Romans chapter three, and the second use is is kind of the primary theological use, and it shows us what our sin is. All right, that's. So it's it it you know so in fact let me show this to you from a text. All right, so from Romans three, Romans three. All right, and of course I <clears throat> typo this here. All right, deleted. There we go. Romans three. All right, so Paul in Romans three verse nine uh, quotes from the Psalms and says, "None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God." This is most certainly true. And then he says this, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every ma- mouth may stop and the whole may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. All right, so the, the, it shows us what our sin is, ha- makes it so that we are held accountable to God. And then you'll note, uh, by works of the law, will no human being be justified in God's sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. All right, so second use of the law, it, it's it the, the law preached rightly, convicts us of our sin and our unbelief and all the different ways in which we deviate from the voice of God in Scripture. 
in commandments as well as doctrines. All right, so second use of the law is that. Third use of the law is the use for Christians, where the law is used to uh, spur us on, to encourage us on to good works. And I would just point you to the back end of all of the epistles, you know, the, you know so starting in like Romans 12, you know, therefore in light of God's mercies, offer yourself as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable, uh, you know, ideas. And then and it goes on and lists the good works that we as Christians are to do. So third use of the law, it, it you know, the, the, it shows us what a good work is, so we get about the business of being busy doing that, not made up works. You get the idea. So those are the three valid uses. And then we note that uh, Paul in First Timothy 1.8 says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. You are using the law law in, uh, uh, unlawfully if you are using the law to tell people that they have to save themselves by being obedient. You are using the law unlawfully if you are convicting people of their sins and then telling them that the solution to their sinfulness is their own obedience. It's not. It's the obedience of Christ that matters, and that's where the gospel comes in the play. The gospel tells us what Christ has done for us, and what has he done? He's died for all of our sins. So you get the idea. So you got to get law and gospel correct. All right. So it must, uh, it must not make a proper, it must make a proper distinction between the law and the gospel and must, must not use the law unlawfully. And then also it must center on Christ and his work and not you and your work. This is why, uh, Paul then in 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter two, then, uh, let's see here. I need to actually pull that text up, don't I? Uh, yep, I didn't have that one queued up. All right, so we are going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, in fact, I'm going to back up into the context on this one because this is, this is just brilliant. Um, so here's what Paul writes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. The, one I want, the verse in particular I want to focus in on is chapter 2. But listen to this. For the word of the cross, the, 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 you know, Jesus dying for our sins, this is folly to those who are perishing. Uh, but to us who are being saved, the word of the cross. It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. So where then is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So you're going to know here. Uh, it has <laughs> pleased God through the folly of what we preach, you know, the cross, that to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. That's what Christians preach, which is a stumbling block for Jews. And you're going to note here, Paul is not talking about, we used to preach Christ crucified only to those people who are not Christians. No, Christians need to hear the folly of the cross. They need to hear what Christ has done for them. You don't graduate from hearing about the cross. That's an important bit because a lot of people say, well, I heard that when I made my decision. I went down the aisle and asked Jesus into my heart. Why do I need to hear that again? Because you're sinning this week. So so you're going to note here, Paul writing to Christians says, we preach the cross. How often? Every time. Okay, so to, you know, so it, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand science, Greeks seek wisdom, 
But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. And I would even say folly to false teachers. Okay, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. And what's the foolish thing he chose in the world to shame the wise? The cross. The preaching of the cross. So God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And that's kind of the point. When you get the cross right, you recognize, I ain't got nothing to boast about to God. Right, exactly. You shouldn't be boasting to anybody. If you want to boast, boast about the things that show your weakness. I'm a sinner, and Christ is my Savior. You get the idea. So because of him, you are in Christ, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, Paul continues, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And here's the bit. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What? What? You all you're going to do is ever going to preach Jesus and him crucified? Yeah, that's right. Well, that's not very practical. That's not going to be a relevant sermon. It's not supposed to be. You see, it's foolishness. And if you think it's foolishness, you still don't understand how much you need the cross. So you'll know. Coming back then to kind of general rules that I operate from, a, a, a sermon in order to be biblically sound must center on Christ and his work, not you and your work. You're the problem. I'm the problem. Christ is the solution. So if you're going to preach about me, you're preaching the problem, not the solution. You, you get the idea here. And then it also it must recognize how the types and shadows of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ, not you. I'll give you one text on this, although I would point to like practically the entire book of Hebrews makes this point. But in Colossians chapter 2, uh, after Paul so brilliantly preaches the gospel to, to us and tells us how because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, he's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands and he set that aside and he nailed it to the cross. And then he goes on to say these words, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, a drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Shabbat or a Sabbath. Watch this. These are a shadow of the things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. And the book of Hebrews really bears this out, that what we see in the Old Testament are types and shadows that find their fulfillment in Jesus, not you. So uh, so the story of David and Goliath is a type and shadow account that points us to how Christ rec- rescues us and defeats the foe that we cannot defeat of our own strength. We're not capable of it. And it's talking, you know, it's really, you know, a type and shadow of Christ's conflict with the devil and what he's done. You are not David. You're not. And so when you make yourself into David, you have set yourself up for failure. Christ is the one who is really being pointed to in the story of David and Goliath, not you. Unless you want to point yourself out and say, well, I was, you know, I I am kind of like one of the Israelite army guys standing on the sidelines, shaking in my boots and 
having my knees knocked together so hard because of my fear and inability to conquer Goliath. Yeah, if you want to put yourself in the story, that's where you put yourself. All right. So coming back then. All right. So it you it must recognize how the types and shadows of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in Christ. Again, all of the book of Hebrews makes that point. Colossians 2, 15 and 17 through 17 also really succinctly point that out. And then kind of lastly, any sermon that engages in scripture twisting in order to create the false impression that the doctrine or doctrines taught in it is or are biblical, that sermon must be rejected as containing false doctrine. And the pastor needs to be considered a false teacher, especially if a significant number of his sermons employ the same or similar scripture twisting tactics. And uh, Titus uh, 1 is really the go-to text on this. Um, so talking about the qualifications for a pastor, everybody knows like the moral qualifications. Uh, so, but watch, there's, there's two categories of qualifications for a pastor. So Paul writing to Titus says, this is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders. Elders here, the presbyteroi are going to be pastors, uh, in every town as I directed you. So if anyone is above reproach, that's a qualification. Husband of one wife. Uh, and uh, in, in the Greek here, it basically says a one-woman man. Okay, so the idea is if, if the pastor is a widower uh, you know, or his wife has you know, cheated on him and abandoned him, it, he's not bound to say, well, you've only got one – you can only be married once. A one-woman man is talking in the terms of like sexual morality, all right? And his children are believers not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer – and so here, you know, episkopos is our Greek word – as God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain – and everyone sits there and goes, well, that's just common sense. Hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And everyone thinks that this is where the, the qualifications stop. But it's not. It goes on. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Not as he invents, as taught, which means he's going to have to study even how the church fathers have handled biblical texts in the past. And uh, and not be innovative, okay? Trustworthy word is taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. He's not allowed to just teach any doctrine. A pastor has to teach what's in accord with what kind of doctrine? Sound doctrine. And he's also required to rebuke those who contradict it. Mm-hmm. And here's the other reason why. For there are many who are insubordinate. Yep, that's what false teachers are. Empty talkers, that's what false teachers are. And deceivers, that's what false teachers are, especially those of the circumcision party. And that was just one of, one group at the time. Uh, and here's what Scripture says. They must be silenced. God wills for these false, insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers to be silenced since they are upsetting, for, uh, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So you get the idea then here. So coming back to our rule, any sermon that engages in scripture twisting in order to create the false impression that the doctrine or doctrines taught in it are, are biblical must be rejected as containing false doctrine. And the pastor needs to be considered a false teacher, especially if a significant number of his sermons employ the same or similar scripture twisting tactics. You get the idea. So. All of that being said, those are the general ground rules that I operate from and have been operating from in the more than decade, uh, you know, almost 13 years that I've been doing 
Fighting for the Faith, either as a podcast, a video, or both. You get the idea. So with that, uh, we're going to uh, dive into our sermon review, and uh, we've changed up the music just a little bit, but you'll get the idea. Here we go. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Saddleback Church, via Hillsong Conference 2015, Rick Warren presiding. The name of the message is Hearing the Voice of God. And I'm just going to ask the kind of simple question here, and that is, if this is a biblical teaching, hearing the voice of God, then why does Rick Warren not just open to that text that clearly teaches that Christians are to hear the visible, audible voice of God? Why does he have to engage in scripture twisting in order to create the impression that God is going to speak directly to you? Those will be the things that we explore as we do some lab work here on Fighting for the Faith in the Real World and review this sermon by Rick Warren back off on the music here. So let's get to it. Uh, here is uh, Rick Warren hearing the voice of God. Here's the setup. And I apologize for the redundancy. We've done some of this already, but now let's do the whole sermon. Here we go. The most important factor in your future is not your background. It's not your race. It's not your education. It's not the opinions of other people or what your parents told you. The most important factor in your future is hearing from God. Now, in a weird way, he's right. Okay? If you won't hear the scriptures, which is where the voice of God said the voice is to be heard, then uh, your future is bleak. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That's Romans 10, 17. So in some strange way, he's correct. But in the way he's meaning, he's not. That's the issue. What does God say about your life? Now, the theme of this conference, Hillsong 15, is speak, Lord. We're listening. So last night I just sat down and wrote out a few thoughts. And I want to talk to you this morning, and I actually want to invite Pastor Brian about halfway through this message to come up and share as we talk about hearing the voice of God. Nothing is more important in your life than you learning how to hear the voice of God and distinguish it from Satan's voice, other people's voice, and your own voice. All I got to do is open up the Bible and read it in context and pay attention to what God is communicating in the meaning there. And then I'm hearing the voice of God. And I don't have to worry about the devil or my own thoughts or anything like that. Now, my own thoughts might sit there and go, no, the Bible can't really mean that. No, it really does. Uh, you know, but, you know, but that's a different story altogether. Nothing is more important than that. So it's a great theme. 
Now, the Bible is full of examples of God speaking to people. Indeed. Over and over and over and over. So what's the problem today? Uh, what do you mean, what's the problem today? If God wanted to speak directly to anybody, he could. And when he spoke directly to somebody, they'd go, yes, Lord. Is that you? Uh, they'd know it was the Lord, right? Um, and you see, when God communicates, he will be heard. You'll note that in Genesis 1, when God said, let there be light, the, the darkness didn't go, is that, is that you, God? You, you want me to turn on the light? Huh? What's a light? No, it didn't do any of that. It, it, God said, let there be light, and there was light. God's going to talk to you. He's going to talk to you. It's as absurd. It is absolutely patently absurd to think that the God who spoke the universe into existence, when he speaks to you, you can't hear him. Does God have laryngitis? Has he got a sore throat? No, not at all. Why can't you hear God speak to you? It's all your fault on a regular basis. The answer is because we're not tuned in. I'm going to point something out here. This is what we call a historical anachronism. And let me explain. So an anachronism is something that is out of place historically. If I were to say that um, and five days after Jesus fed the 5,000, he was in Capernaum hanging out, kicking it with the disciples. And while Jesus went over to the microwave and was uh, cooking up a burrito, he asked Peter, who do people say that I am? He'd sit there and go, wait a second. They didn't have microwaves and burritos uh, when, <laughs> uh, when Jesus was around. It's the, ah, that's an anachronism. Okay, so the fault here is that God's talking, but you're not, quote, tuning in. Now, we all understand what tuning in means because we've all operated a radio or an old-fashioned television, which required you to tune in. You had to turn the dial, get it on the right frequency and all this kind of stuff. But before Marconi, there were no tuning ins. The, the, if, you were, if you were to go back just 150, 200 years and tell people, the reason why you're not hearing from God is because you ain't tuning in. They'd all look at you and go, what, 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 is, what does it mean to tune in? What's a tune in? <laughs> Nobody would get it. Okay, so already the, the, the fault here lies in you not tuning in. Well, Jesus and his disciples um, at the time of the first century would have, no con have zero concept of tuning in. So this can't possibly be the reason. We're not tuned in. What I want to do in this time this morning is a couple things. Quickly just share the best example I know in Scripture of how to hear the voice of God. All right, so best example of how to hear the voice of God. So apparently there's a text that's going to teach us how to hear the voice of God. And we're going to test to see if that text teaches us, and watch the important word, how to hear the voice of God. Through Moses. All right, so through Moses. And then I want to invite Pastor Brian up. And I told him we were going to, I was going to do this. And I want to just discuss with him, how do you test an impression? Where? Okay, now, real quick. Real, it's off the top of your head. We have, Brian Houston hasn't taken the stage yet uh, during this, this message. Let me ask you, where in the Bible does it say, here are the four steps to test an impression? 
which biblical texts talk about impression testing? I I don't know any. Because a lot of you can't figure it out. Now, the longer you walk with the Lord, I've walked with Jesus. So notice the scolding they're getting. You're not tuned in and you haven't figured out how to test an impression yet. And he's scolding you because you should have figured this out by now. Wow. Christ for over 50 years. All right, let me back this up because Rick Warren is the king of the humble brag and there's nothing humble about his brags. Impression. Because a lot of you can't figure it out. Now, the longer you walk with the Lord, I've walked with Jesus Christ for over 50 years. I know the voice of Jesus Christ. I know when he speaks to me. There's no doubt in my mind. Mm. See, he's got this all worked out. I mean, he's walked with the Lord for over 50 years. Well, um, let's see. I'm 52. So I've walked with the Lord for um, almost 40. And I have yet to hear the voice of God outside of the scriptures. Does that mean I, I, I just don't know the Lord? And, and those of you who are new to Christ, you sit there and go, oh, man, I must be doing it wrong. I don't hear the voice of God ever, right? Oh, no, I must not be a Christian. That's that's what the – this is a heavy burden he's putting on people. And, boy, he – but, of course, he's got it all sorted out, you know. And the Bible says that hearing God's voice and being able to distinguish it is important for three reasons. First, it proves you are a child of God. Jesus said... Which text says that hearing the audible voice of God proves that you're a child of God? Now, I'm going to give it context again, and we'll talk about the text. We've already debunked this, but we'll show you. It's important for three reasons. First, it proves you are a child of God. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. All right, so that's going to be in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Let me pull it up. Gospel of John, chapter 10. And we've already covered this, but it's good to be a little bit redundant. Uh, So Jesus in John 10, uh, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. And we noted that this is a figure of speech. In John chapter 17, and we've established this in the earlier lectures that we've done on hearing the voice of God, Christ has made it clear that the words he received from the Father, he has now given to his disciples. And that in John 17, it says that people will believe in Jesus through their words, which are not their words, the, the words of Christ that Christ has given. So we, we note that uh, where has Christ said his His voice is to be heard? Um in the apostolic scriptures. He's twisting this text to make it sound like, oh, well, you're going to hear the audible voice of Jesus. That's not what the text says. And the greater context of John bears that out, John 17 being very clear. So uh, Jesus also says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, talking about the Gentiles. And then in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. But where is the voice of Christ speaking to us from here in the Bible? You'll you'll notice the red letters right there on the screen. Yeah, those red letters right there on the screen, those are the words of Jesus. (laughs) Just saying, you know, you you want to hear the voice of Jesus? Well, there it is right there. You know, it's it's, it's in the red text right there. That's the voice of Jesus right there. So, uh, yeah. Sometimes I just got to point out the obvious. Okay, we continue. The Bible tells us in the the book of John, 
Chapter 8, verse 47. He, All right, we're going to take a look, look at John 8, 47. Let's hear how he uses it first here. Here we go. The Bible tells us in the, in the book of John, chapter 8, verse 47, he who belongs to God hears God's voice. Now, he's twisting here. And I'll explain here in a second here. Uh, although I am doing this from memory. John 8, he said 47, I believe. Hang on a second here. John 8, 47. All right, here we go. All right, all right. Let me put this in context. All right, so if God were... Oh, this is a wonderful text, by the way. I love this this exchange. Christ is in like a rolling battle uh, with the Pharisees and the Jews who refuse to believe in him. Uh, and, and, and Jesus said, answered... They told him that their father is the devil. <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, it's, it's Jesus answered them. Abraham, they, they answered Jesus, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now that you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God, this is not what Abraham did. You're doing the works of your father. And they said, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, listen, if God were your father, you'd love me. I came not of my own accord, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth. Now, this is an important bit here. <laughs> Christ is telling us something about the devil. He does not stand in the truth, hates the truth, all right, because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. That's how Satan operates. Not not God, not Christ, and not Christ's disciples nor pastors in Christ's church. So he goes on and says, But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So which of you convicts me of sin? Um, if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? And then watch what he says. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Okay? Words of God. It doesn't say voice. It says words. Rema. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So it doesn't say whoever is of God hears the voice of God. It's whoever is of God hears the words of God. Where are the words of God in the Bible? Even God makes that very clear, that his voice is found in the scriptures. So the, the one whoever hears the words of God is of God. If you, if you can't handle God's words, rightly, you don't want to hear them. You want to be taught lies and have them twisted up. You're not of God. All right? So he's right in one sense. The one who doesn't want to hear the words of God is not of God. All right? They say, they go, oh, I better apply myself to scripture. Yeah. Because that's what Christians do because they're Christians, all right? So coming back to Rick Warren, so watch the one word that he twists this up. And already we've noted he's twisted John 10, and now he's egregiously twisted John 8, 47 by changing a word from words of God to voice. Listen again. Here we go. The Bible tells us in the, in the book of John, chapter 8, verse 47, he who belongs to God hears God's voice. No, hears the words of God. And he who does not belong to God does not hear it. His words, that's what Jesus said. You changed it to voice. You're running roughshod over the scriptures. Not only that, it protects you from mistakes, Job. Now, I would point out, 
Rick Warren refuses to hear the voice of Jesus because uh, <clears throat> I, I, th- I pointed this out before. Whoever is of God hears the words of God. Those are in red letters. So note that Rick Warren is not hearing the voice of Jesus. He's twisting the voice of Jesus. What does that tell you about him? You sit there and go, really? Yeah. That's the conclusion that she should come to. Let's come back to this. Belongs to God, hears God's voice. And he who does not belong to God does not hear it. Not only that, it protects you from mistakes. Job 33 talks about that. Job 33. All right, hang on a second here. Let's, uh, do I want this one? Yeah, all right, let's go here. Job, Job 33, hearing the voice of God protects you from mistakes. But now hear my speech, O Job, and listen to my words. Who is speaking here? I, you know, hang on a second. This is the one thing I don't like about accordance is that uh, the the text doesn't have the chapter divisions and so I need to check a more traditional text. I, I'm going to use my iPad, though. <laughs> Hang on a second here. I, I need to see who's talking here. Job 33 and Elihu. All right, got it. All right. So uh, now hear my words, O Job, and listen to all my words. Behold, I open my mouth. The tongue in my mouth speaks. My words declare the uprightness of my heart. And what my lips know, they speak sincerely. The Spirit of God has made me in the breath of all, a breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me if you can. Set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Behold, I, I am toward God as you are. I too was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. Surely you have spoken in my ears and have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, but there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me, and he counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my past. You know the Rick Warren did give us a verse here? Um, and you got, Job is a tricky, tricky uh, 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 book to work with because Job's comforters, they're all theologically wackerdoodle. Um, but, uh, you know, it, there's another character who's not, and you have to pay attention to that guy a little closer. Uh, but I don't see any here. Let's see here. So behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying he will not? He will answer none of, my, of man's words? For God speaks in one way, in two, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on men while the slumber on their beds, he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. Now, here's the thing. This is true of the Old Testament, that God spoke to human beings in this way. I mean, you that you can point to... Uh, Jacob, uh, you can point to Pharaoh, uh, you can even point to Nebuchadnezzar as examples of this. But here's the thing, when God speaks to people in riddles like this, um, they've still got to figure all of this out. And so you have to make a distinction between the way God spoke in the past and the way he's speaking in the present. So this is where Hebrews chapter 1 is going to be very helpful. So you'll note that it says this in Hebrews 1, Long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days he's appointed to us uh, uh, to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. So Again, so we make a distinction between how God has spoken to human humanity in the past, 
And you'll note that 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 does not take away from the fact that God is speaking in his word and wants people to hear his word. That's where the voice of God is heard. Uh, but that we, we don't we don't deny that God spoke in various ways in the past at all. The issue is, where do we go today to hear the voice of God? So him quoting Job, just referencing Job 33 without any explanation, no exegesis. Um, I think he didn't give us any exegesis because he knew that if he did, uh, people would see that he was running slipshod over that text. Not only that, it is the key to productive life. In- so, so hearing the voice of God directly is the key to a productive life, he says. What text says that? No text says that. The thing I have been able to accomplish in my life is by the grace of God and because I was able to discern what God was saying in that moment. Appeal to uh, personal experience, which is dubious in his case. Nothing is more important than you to be able to say, speak, Lord, I'm listening. Just open the Bible. He's talking in the Bible. And then not have any doubt that it was God. Uh, and then you got to have no doubts. Was that you, God? Who was talking to you? All right. So that's his, you know, this is why it's important. And now he's going to go to a text that's going to teach us how to hear the voice of God. Now to hear God's voice, you've got to start with an attitude of submission. You surrender. Oh, okay. So uh, step number one is you begin with an attitude of submission. What text says that? That I can hear the voice of God if I begin with an attitude of submission. I don't know any text that says that. And I would even point to the fact that uh, Balaam, um, he heard the voice of God very clearly. And he was not submitted to God at all. Uh, Yeah, he was a complete pagan sorcerer. And he heard the voice of God and wasn't submissive one bit. In advance. It's not like, tell me, Lord, and then I'll decide what to do. It's a matter of, I've already decided, yes, now just tell me what the, question, what the, what the instructions are. And the best example of this is Moses. Now, you can divide Moses' life into three phases, 40, 40, 40. He spent 40 years uh, in the wilderness, in the desert, but before that, he spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court, learning to be a somebody. Then he spent 40 years in the desert learning to be a nobody. And then he spent the final 40 years of his life being God's somebody. And the episode I want us to look at for just a second happens two-thirds through his life. Moses is 80 years old. It's at the end of the 40 years in the desert. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 4, Then the Lord... All right, now we're going to turn there real quick. And we're going to ask this question. Is Exodus chapter 4 a how-to text on how to hear the voice of God? No, not at all. In fact, I'm going to point out the obvious here. Exodus chapter 4 is in the middle of the burning bush account, not at the beginning of it. That is a problem. So let's add some context. Context, context, context. So here's what it says. So this is after Moses has fled for his life, uh, after murdering an Egyptian. And uh, it's and so he's now been married, he has kids, and he's been a shepherd for 40 years. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is uh, Sinai. 
And the angel of Yahweh appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burning. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not come near. Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Now, quick question. Uh, where in this text does it say that uh, Moses had an attitude of submission before God began talking to him? It doesn't. It doesn't exist. Rick Warren is making up steps that you've got to go through. First, it begins, you have to have an attitude of submission. Well, I don't see an attitude of submission on the part of Moses here in Exodus 3, and God's talking to him without that appearing first. In fact, you're going to note something here. If you read the entire account, we might as well do that. Uh, Moses doesn't seem to have much of an attitude of submission. Let's keep testing this. All right, so God talks to him before even Moses has any any kind of attitude of submission. So he turned aside. God called him in the bush. Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take off your sandals. The place on which you're standing is holy ground. I am the God of, of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. And then Moses said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I always like to throw in the Uptites too and the Balletites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Well, that doesn't sound like an attitude of submission. He said, but I will bring you with you, and you, I, I, I shall be with you, and, you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. And then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of, the, of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey, and they will listen to your voice, and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God." But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. 
So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. When you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and for clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters so that you shall plunder the Egyptians. So then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. They will say, Yahweh did not appear to you. Does this sound like an attitude of submission to you, by the way? No. And Yahweh said to him, what's that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So you're going to note here, God now gives him miraculous signs to perform to validate the fact that he was sent by Yahweh. So what's in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But Yahweh said to Moses, put your hand out and catch it by the tail. So he put his hand out and caught it and became a staff. And watch God's words. That they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So let me ask you. What's the reason why God had Moses throw his staff down? To show him the sign that he would show the children of Israel so that they would believe that God sent Moses to them. And again, Yahweh said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand in his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back in his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe that uh, the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water from the Nile, pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. All right? So note here, if they will not believe even these two signs, these are signs given by God so that people will believe. But Moses said to Yahweh, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Does this sound like submission to you? It doesn't sound like submission to you. It doesn't sound like submission to me. So Yahweh said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, Yahweh? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. So how how is this a text that teaches me how to hear the voice of God, if point one is you have to have an attitude of submission, when Moses, all of chapter three, and here now halfway through chapter four, is not keen on submitting to the voice of God that began speaking to him before there was any submission. Warren's twisting this text. Let me back this up. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 4, Then the Lord, this is when he's at the burning bush, says to Moses, What is in your hand? And Moses says, It's a staff. That, by the way, is the second most important question in life. What's in your hand? What? Again, we just read the text. The reason why God asked him what was in his hand was he then had him throw it down 
because God gave him three signs to prove that God sent him. That's the purpose of this. So why is what's in your hand the second most important question you can be asked? The first big question in life is, what have you done with my son, Jesus Christ? Oh, great. They lost Jesus, and they're blaming it on me. (laughs) What have you done with him? I don't know. (laughs) When was the last time you saw him, man? Anyway, if you know the answer to that one. The second most important is what is in your hand. Now, let's do this picture. Moses is out in the wilderness, and he's tending sheep. And one day he sees this burning bush. And he walks up to it, and the voice comes out of the burning bush, says, Moses, this is holy ground. Take off your shoes. So Moses takes off his shoes. And then God says to Moses, what is in your hand? You just it totally gutted out the entire portion in between. You make it sound like Moses rolls up on this burning bush. Take off your shoes, Moses. Okay. What's in your hand, Moses? Uh, you left out all the other important bits in between. Well, it's a staff. It's just a shepherd's staff. It's just an old stick. God says, throw it down. Yeah, in order for it to become a serpent, because that was a sign to the children of Israel that God actually sent Moses. And he throws it down and it becomes a what? A snake, a serpent. Something that was dead comes alive. Now, what he's saying, totally leaving out all the important details. Did did he read that out of a biblical text? Nope, he didn't read that out at all. Is this what this text is saying? Nope. Is this what this text means? No, not even close. Rick Warren is rolling his own theology now and smoking it. And then he says... Pick it up. So Charlton Heston leans over. Oh, you saw that movie. And he picks it up. And once he picks up the snake, it becomes what? A stick again. It just dies. Now, is that not the strangest story you've ever heard? God says, what do you got? Stick. Throw it down. Becomes a snake. Pick it up. Becomes a stick again. What is that all about? That's like one of the strangest stories in the scripture. Well, funny enough, the text actually says what that's all about. The text says, if you just back up, that uh, so that they would believe, so that they may believe that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, has sent you, has appeared to you. That's what that's about. The text says so. Hmm. Well, I know a couple things. I know one, number one, God never does a miracle to show off. Uh, God doesn't say, hey, I just learned this new trick at the Magic Castle. It's really... Why is he acting like the text doesn't tell us the reason why God did this? The text explicitly says why. He's playing dumb so that he can teach his own doctrines, not what the doctrine of Scripture teaches here. Well, you can really dazzle friends with it at the next cocktail party. Watch this. Throw the stick down, becomes a snake. Pick it up, it becomes a stick again. Wow, that'll be really cool. Everybody will love that. God never does a miracle to show off. He's always trying to teach a lesson. Every miracle is a parable, and every parable is a miracle. It's a miracle of divine truth. 
It's what he wants to teach him. Miracles of parable? Where does it say that? The second thing I know about this is when God asks you a question, he already knows the answer. Again, note here, he's, he's intentionally left out all the details of this account and make it sound like he can divine what's really going on here when the text already tells us what's really going on there. When God asks you a question, he wants you to know the answer. God knew what was in Moses' hand. He knew a thousand years before Moses was born what would be in his hand. When God says, what's in your hand? He's going, do you recognize what's in your hand? A cup of Earl Grey tea. What are you talking about? This is nuts. This man is demonically duplicitous. Remember what Christ says of the devil. The truth does not dwell in him. All right, And that people uh, who don't hear the words of God, uh, that they, they are like the devil because the devil is the father of lies. This guy is flat out, I mean, demonically twisting this text. Now, the key to this whole story is understanding the symbolism of the staff. There is no symbolism of the staff. The reason why is because God said that the purpose of these signs, these miraculous signs, was so that the people of Israel would believe that God sent Moses and that he had appeared to them. The text says so. Notice he's not exegeting. He's not reading nothing. Because the staff represents three things in Moses' life. His identity. Says who? His income. What? You're making this up out of thin air, Rick. And his influence. First, the staff represents Moses. This is bovine scatology. Utter BS. That's what that is. He's just making this up. Identity. It represents who he is. Every um, every occupation has its own symbol. If I wear a stethoscope around my neck, you figure I'm a doctor. If I've got on a white coat, it means I'm uh, I'm a technician or a lab technician or scientist. All right, I'm I'm gonna speed this up just a little bit because I'm I'm afraid I might spontaneously combust while reviewing this sermon because of how blasphemously he is twisting these texts. So the sooner I get through them, the better it is for my heart. The shepherd's staff, you know, the staff of a crook at the end of it, is a symbol of what Moses was. He was a shepherd. It was a symbol of who he was. The text is clear. The purpose of the miracles was to be a sign that God appeared to Moses. Shepherd's staff is a symbol of a shepherd. Second, it's not only a symbol of his identity, it's a symbol of his income. Because in those days, you could tell a person's wealth by how many animals they had. All of this is just pontificating. None of this can exegetically be uh, justified by looking at what the text says. He's just making this up. All your wealth was stored in livestock. You didn't have stocks and bonds and banking accounts and savings certificates. And so it's really easy to find out how wealthy a person was. If you got a lot of animals, you're rich. If you got a few animals, you're, you're okay. If you have no animals, you're poor. And so the, the flock, the shepherd's staff, represents not only his identity but his income. He made his living tending sheep. And all of his assets were tied up in his flocks. That's why in the book of Proverbs it says, Know well the condition of your flocks. The modern translation, that would be, Know your business interests well. Today, instead of saying know the condition of your flocks, God would say know the condition of your stocks and your bonds. But in those days, your, your livelihood was tied up in animals. So it represents not only his identity, it represents his income, how much money he had, his wealth, his source of provision in his life. And then the third thing it represents is it represents his influence. 
What do you use a staff for if you're a shepherd? You move them, use it to move sheep from point A to point B. You either pull them or you poke them. I hook or my crook. Now, here's the sad part. All the people there at Hillsong Conference, they clearly don't know their Bibles well enough to know that they're being conned here. They're taking notes going, oh, wow, I didn't know that the shepherd's staff symbolized those three things. Everything he's saying here is utter nonsense. Has nothing to do with what the text says. The reason why God asked the question is answered by God just a few verses later. And Rick is not teaching the text. If he were, if you were actually walking through the text, he couldn't be saying the things he's saying. And you move people, you move sheep with a shepherd's staff. It represents his influence. And God is saying to Moses, I want you to lay down your identity. <laughs> Hang on, I'm going to slow it down again to normal speed. And um, wow, I mean, this is unbelievable. So li- listen again to this nonsense. Here we go. And God is saying to Moses, I want you to lay down. Your identity. No, he's not. You made that totally up. Because remember, point one, if you want to hear the voice of God, you have to start with an attitude of submission. And so when God said to Moses, lay down your staff, there's the attitude of submission. That's step one on how to hear the voice of God. And your income and your influence. And I want you to give it to me. No, no. You're totally adding that to the text. It's not in the text. It's not even a inference of the text. And if you give it to me, I will make it come alive. No. (laughs) God didn't even say that. He put it on the ground and became a snake. And Moses ran from it, man. What are you talking about? I'll do a miracle with it if you give it to me. If you, By the way, you're probably sitting here. Is Rick Warren always this terrible in how he handles the scripture? Always. Without exception. Lay it down. But every time you pick it up and you take it back, it's going to die. <laughs> what? But every time you take your staff back, Moses, you take your identity back, it's going to die. He really... He believes the, the the nonsense that he's spewing at this point. Unbelievable. It just goes back to dirty, old, dead stick. God is saying this to you today. What is in your hand? No, he's not in your lying and you're blaspheming the holy name of God by saying this. What's your identity? What's your income? What's your influence? However great or small it is, God is saying, do you know what I put in your hand? (laughs) This is absurd. The, The fact that people are not walking out and going, this guy is Looney Tunes and a false teacher. Flee the building lest we be struck by lightning. It tells you something. If you lay it down, I will make it come alive. But every time you take it back, it's going to die. Unbelievable. Now, oh, woo! he's not even getting a standing O. A lot of people are going, oh, what? <laughs> this 
simple little yeah, they're trying to clap for him. I suggest you is one of the most important stories in history. Oh, I agree, but not for the reasons you're saying. Because if this had not happened, there would be no Exodus. There would be no 10 commandments. There would be no nation of Israel. There would be no Messiah. There would be no death on the cross then, and there would be no church, and we wouldn't be sitting here today if Moses hadn't done that. If he hadn't laid down his identity, man, he didn't. It's a pivotal point in history. What is in your hand? Utter garbage, gobbledygook. This is the standard sermon in evangelicalism. Rick Warren is just the tip of the iceberg because he has trained hundreds of thousands of pastors to manipulate the texts just the way he does. And he lays it down and God says, I will make it come alive and I will do miracles. <laughs> no, he didn't. God said, so that they will believe that I met with you, Moses. That is interesting. That after this happens in Exodus 3 and 4, never again in the Bible is it called Moses' staff. Never again is it called Moses' staff. Never again. Really. From this point on, every time this stick is mentioned in Scripture, it is no longer called Moses' staff. It is called the rod of God. Well, let's do a little fact-checking on that, shall we? Here we go. All right, so we are in accordance, and I am going to do a search. I'm going to search for the word staff, all right? And we are going to limit the search to the uh, Old Testament. Well, let's see here. I'm going to just go all text. Let's take a look. We'll look at only the Old Testament text. All right, so staff. All right. Now, Genesis doesn't count, so I'm just going to scroll ahead here. So here's Exodus 4, and uh, so that's in the time period he's talking about. Uh, so Exodus chapter 7, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh. Exodus 7, it's called a staff. All right, let's see if it's called a staff later than that. Exodus 8, Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff. Mata in Hebrew. Staff. Uh-huh. All right. And then he did so. And Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff, his mata. All right. Let's see here. All right. Let's see here. Leviticus. Um, let's see here. Yeah, let's see. Moses lifted up his hand, struck the rock with his staff. Numbers chapter 20, uh, verse 11, with his staff twice, and water, and mata in Hebrew, staff, twice. Water came out abundantly. Hmm. That's weird. Hang on a second here. Now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go to Google. Hang on a second here. Google. Google, what do we do here? I'm going to look for Bible and, quote, Rod of God. All right, let's see here. Uh, Rod of God Bible verse. All right, let's see here. 16 verses about rods. All right, let's see here. (laughs) 
The staff is first mentioned in the book of Exodus when God appears, a uh, burning bush, and asks Moses what's in his hand. The staff is therefore referred to as the rod of God or staff of God, depending on translation. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, hang on a second here. So I'm doing a little bit of work here because you're going to note here, th- there's plenty of instances where it just says staff after Exodus 3 and 4, and that that seems to lend itself uh, against uh, what what he's saying here. So now let me do one more search. Then I'm going to change to the King James version, and we are going to look for rod. Okay, all right, and uh huh. Oh, watch this. So in Exodus four, um, in the King James. What is that in thine hand? And he said, a rod. So the King James translates matah as what? Rod. So here's what we know then in this little fact-checking endeavor of ours is that Rick Warren's point here, it's not true. That from then on, Moses' staff was referred to as, quote, the rod of God. Because the texts show that long after, long after Exodus 3 and 4, it kept being referred to as a staff. That's just the facts. So let me back this up just a little bit and hear the point again, which is not true. Every time this stick is mentioned in Scripture, it is every time. No longer called Moses' staff, it is called the rod of God. No, it's not. We just proved that from numbers, from even further in Exodus, what you're saying is not true. And it is the rod of God that God uses to do all the miracles in the Exodus. He does all the ten plagues through the rod of God. uh, Moses takes the rod, dips it in the Nile River, and it turns red as blood. Yeah, it's a matah, it says staff. He holds up the rod of God. Matah, it says staff. Red Sea, and it splits. Yeah, that, t- in that account, it does say matah, staff. It's the rod of God, and he hits the rock at Mara. And yeah, that's also it's called staff. Water comes out to feed a million thirsty Jews. Every single miracle from that point on was done through the rod of God. Well, that's weird, because... That's the Bible disagrees with you. I just found the passages and proved you to, to, to what you're saying to be false. So one has to ask the question: Is the reason why what he's saying isn't true is because he didn't do his homework, or because he heard this from somebody else and just passed it along without checking it, or is he intentionally deceiving people? I mean, th- we don't have many options at this point. What is in your hand? Told you, glass Earl Grey has nothing to do with my identity either, nor does this text uh, from Exodus 3 or 4 have anything to do with my identity or yours or how to hear the voice of God. And if I don't get anything else done or any more of this message completed, I would say to you, you need to take your identity, your influence, and your income, and you need to lay it down. And God says, if you do, I will make it come alive. No, he doesn't. What you, you just made God say something he never said. 
if I lay down my identity, my life, and my income, that God will make it come alive? No text says that, especially Exodus 4. This is, this is demonic, how deceitfully he is twisting God's word and saying things for God that God never said or even implied. And I could tell you a thousand personal stories. And that's the problem about that. Yeah, yeah, personal stories don't rise to the level of biblical doctrines. But it starts, hearing the voice of God starts with the example of Moses being willing to submit. <laughs> yeah, and at the end of all that, Moses had said someone else. He, so much for submission, man. To surrender, to yield, to give up. Directly contradicts what the text says. Straight out, flat out contradicts it. His identity, his influence, and his income for the global glory of God. When you do that, now you are in a position to hear God speak. Mm -hmm. Weird. Moses was far from a position of submitting. And he heard God speak even before God said, what's in your hand? And throw your staff on the ground. None of this checks out. Everything he's saying shows that he is flat out making this up. Now, who would want you to hear voices other than the real voice of God? I would argue it's the devil. The devil doesn't want you to hear the real voice of God. The devil wants you to be chasing after every whisper on the wind and every, every so-called sign that maybe God's talking to you in the birds and the trees and the rocks and by the numbers on your alarm clock. Uh, but he doesn't want you listening to the real voice of God in Scripture. So we're dealing with a flat-out demonic twisting of God's Word. And again, if the Bible taught that I needed to hear the audible voice of God why isn't Rick Warren just going to these texts and showing using clear, sound exegesis that this is what God has written in his word and here's how to do it? Answer, because the Bible doesn't teach it. So he's he's going through the entire dog and pony show here of trying to make it appear like the Bible teaches this when it doesn't. And God spoke to Moses face to face. Now I want you to write down a couple things. Here are a couple prerequisites for hearing God. Oh, here, here's some prerequisites. Have you, have you met the criteria for hearing God's voice? Number one, I must believe that God cares about the details of my life. Where is that in the fine print? I, I must have missed it. I, I think it's written in Helvetica six-point font, you know, maybe in the back of my Bible behind the concordance or something. Where does it say this? I must believe that God cares... See, God won't talk to you if you don't believe that he doesn't care about the details of your life. No text says this. The details of my life. The Bible tells us in Matthew 10, 30, God knows even the hairs on your head. Right, and that has nothing to do with a prerequisite for hearing God's voice. By the way, we're going to have to break this sermon up into multiple parts. <laughs> this is like part one. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> He's so bad at twisting God's word. All right, let's let's take a look at uh, at Matthew Matthew chapter ten, and we're going to ask ourselves a question in Matthew ten, and what's the verse verse thirty? Is Christ giving us a prerequisite that we must achieve before we can hear the voice of Christ? Okay, and I'll point out the obvious along the way. All right, so let's take a look here. We're going to apply our three rules for sound biblical exegesis, which are context, 
context and context. So we're going to start at verse 24 and note something here. The wall of red letters. Whose voice are you hearing when you read this portion of scripture? I'll give you three guesses. The first two don't count. The last one's Jesus, and that's the one that matters. All right, so you're hearing the voice of Jesus here. You ready? A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant to be like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall again, uh, fall to the ground apart from your father. Not, But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Yep, nothing here in the context says, and then if you believe that God cares about the numbers of your head, then you have earned the right to hear the voice of Jesus. Because I'm hearing the voice of Jesus because this is all red letters. So what Rick Warren is doing here is turning Matthew 10.30 into a prerequisite to hearing the voice of God. Prerequisite number one, you have to have an attitude of submission. Number two, you must believe that God cares about the details of your life. That's kind of an important step number two. But that's not what Matthew 10.30 says. Why is it that he's twisting scripture this badly? Got them all counted. Now, for some of you, that's not too hard. God knows every hair on your head and the original color. And how many fell out in the sink this morning. God is ODing on details in your life. There's nothing in your life that God doesn't know. And so that before you can realize that God wants to speak to you, you've got to realize that God cares about every detail of your life. There's no detail he does not care about. Why? Because the Bible says God is love. Indeed, God is love. And he does know all the details of my life. But it is not a prerequisite that I believe that before I can, quote, hear the voice of God. Because the voice of God tells me those things even before I believe it in the scriptures. God has love. It says God is love. It is the essence of his nature. It is his character. It is who God is. Everything in the universe was created for God to love. God is a God. I really hope all those people are on Instagram and are like not paying attention to this. (laughs) This is where having a social media distraction is something that can save you a heartache of grief and time in hell. Of love. If you weren't created in God's image, and if God was not a God of love, there would be no love in your life. The only reason you have the ability to receive love and give love is because you have a creator who loves. Again, I agree. God loves. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who loves not does not know God, for God is love. This is what the voice of God says in Scripture. This is true. But this is not a prerequisite to hearing the voice of God. God thought up love. You were created to be loved by God. You want to know why your heart is beating right now? You want to know why you're breathing this next breath? God made you to love you. 
He made you to love you. And God's love is unlike anybody else's love because it's unconditional. Because it's not based on what you do, it's based on who he is. It's not. Mm, it's based on what Christ has done for me. God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that I might be the righteousness of God. It is because of what Christ has done for us on the cross that we have been reconciled to the Father. So um, when you talk about God's love towards sinners apart from the cross, you make it sound like God just loves everybody, just loves, 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 loves. But, but um, you got to remember, God loves us for the sake of Christ because he bled and died to take our sin upon himself and suffer the wrath of God in our place so that we can be reconciled to God. Now we got a problem. Based on your conduct, it is based on his character. No, Christ's death. God will never love you any more than he does this very moment right now. Can, are you going to say that to impenitent sinners? God will never love you any less than he does in this moment right now. God loves you on your good days and your bad days. He loves you when you think you deserve it, when you think you don't deserve it. Yeah, based on his mishandling of all of the biblical texts so far, do you trust his definition of God's love at this point? And are you comfortable with the fact he's talking about the love of God towards human beings without even once mentioning the need for people to be forgiven and repent of their sins and having and believing that Christ died for their sins? Are you comfortable with that based on how he's handled the biblical text so far? Or are you thinking maybe, just maybe, that, that, that uh, his definition of love may be way off? He loves you when you feel it, and he loves you when you don't feel it. You can't make God stop loving you. Well, that's weird because um, on the last day, Christ will say to people, depart from me, I never knew you. And he will send actual human beings into the lake of fire with the devil and his angels. Are you really making such a blanket statement as this that you are omitting that part too? You can try, but you will fail. Because God's not, love is not based on your behavior. It's based on who he is. Uh, my behavior is the thing, and my sin is the thing that separated me from God. And Christ had to bleed and die for that to me to, for me to be reconciled to God. What are you talking about? It's now, it's, I really do hope people were watching Instagram rather than listening to this. So the first thing I must realize, if I want to hear God speak, speak, Lord. I'm listening. Is I got to believe that God's interested in the details of my life because now that's a prerequisite according to which text again? He loves me and love pays attention. Well, I'll just throw this one in. Dad's. I have dads tell me all the time, I don't understand what my wife and kids want. I give them everything they want. You know what they want? They want you. They want your attention. Now, this is true. Uh, absolutely true. But again, what does this have to do with hearing the voice of God and somehow meeting a prerequisite that you've just invented that I've got to achieve before I can hear the voice of God? Attention is the greatest gift you can give somebody because you're saying, I value you. I'm willing to give you my time. I'm give you willing my attention, my eyes. I believe that God cares about every detail of my life. And the other prerequisite for hearing God. All right, so this uh, prerequisite number one is clearly not taught in Scripture. He just made it up. 
I can't wait to hear what prerequisite number two is. Is I must believe that God wants to answer my questions. Okay, so the reason why I've never heard the audible voice of God is because I clearly don't believe that God cares about the details of my life, yet I do. And I don't believe that God wants to answer my questions, which is also ridiculous. I do believe that as well. I believe that all the answers to my questions that I need right now are found in Scripture, and that I can hear God's voice in the Bible. So we got a problem here. Where did you get prerequisite number two, Rick? My confusions, my quandaries, my problems that God wants to answer. I have to believe that. James 1, 5 and 6. If you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him. (laughs) He'll gladly tell you, for he's always ready to give wisdom to those who ask him. Okay, and he won't resent it. But when you ask, be sure that you expect him to tell you. All right, hang on a second here. You, You smell that? Yeah, you smell that? That smells like a sulfur-laden translation to me. Hang on a second here. James 1, 5 to 6. Okay. All right, we're just doing a little little translational uh, comparative work here. If anyone, hey, they taste humon. If anyone lacks wisdom, lepetai sophia. So if you are lacking wisdom, let him ask God. Okay, so I tell you, para tu didan tasteu pasen. Okay, and 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 God who uh, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. The ESV is faithful translation here. All right, let's do a little translational comparative work, okay? Another really good translation is the NASB. So if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. All right, so that's, uh, but let him ask in faith. So is there anything here about hearing the voice of God? Nothing here. All right, let's check the King James, all right, which is also a fine translation. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, not wavering. All right, so those are your, we'll look at three translations. All right, and they're all pretty much saying the same thing. If you lack wisdom, ask God. Let's take a look at what Rick Warren was spewing. James 1, 5 to 6, according to Rick Warren, is if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him and he will gladly tell you, for he is always ready to give wisdom to those who ask him, and he will not resent it, but when you ask, be sure that you expect him to tell you. That's not what the text says at all. And I would note that the ESV does a fine job. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. I teo theu. Let him ask God, who gives generously uh, to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It doesn't say, and God will tell you. He's flat out adding to the text. Flat out. This is not what, what he says is not what the Bible says. This is demonic. Um, let me, let me, let me pat, back this up so you can hear it in context again. The, I don't know what 
translation he's reading from, but it ain't a faithful translation of what the Greek says. James 1, 5 and 6. If you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him. And he'll gladly tell you, for he's always ready to give wisdom to those who ask him. And he won't resent it. But when you ask, be sure that you expect him to tell you. You have to ask in faith, not in doubt. God, That's not what the text says. The text doesn't say he will tell you. You ask God for wisdom and he will give it to you. Not playing games with your life. Some of you think God is trying to hide his will from you. I talked to somebody between the breaks yesterday. I said, how are you doing? He goes, I just don't know what God wants me to do. And he thinks that maybe God is maybe hiding it from him. It's in the Bible. That, here, here's the thing. This is another issue. All right. So one of the things that causes so much confusion is that people expect that God has made decisions on things that he has delegated authority to us to make decisions on. And worse, we think that we can make decisions on things that belong to God. Okay, so for instance, Scripture gives you guidelines on who you're going on who to marry. Don't marry a pagan or an unbeliever. All right, Scripture flat out forbids that. All right, so who do I marry? Somebody who isn't one of those things. Choose wisely. But wait, don't hasn't God chosen my soulmate for you? No, no, God hasn't chosen your soulmate. God wants you to, if you're going to get married, make a wise decision based on the criteria that are laid out in Scripture. It's your decision, not his. That's true. All right? So you sit there and go, wait, what? What, what job should, should I take? All right. Well, look at your options. Do any of the job offers require you to sin against God? Well, there's one. All right. Well, that's off the table. How about the other two? Well, they're both legitimate, all right? So which one is going to uh, cause you to be the, uh, the away from your family the most? Well, the, the second one, but it pays more. Is, is having it pay more worth the, the, the time that your family is going to miss you as, as, a, as a parent? Well, no, it's not. Well, then choose the other option. That's your decision, not God's. You don't, so the thing, you know, these are decisions God has delegated to you and you, and people expect, oh, God has chosen this, this business for me. He's chosen this, this, uh, to, to take this job. No, that's not how this works. You make those decisions. Those are, uh, that's authority delegated to you. So you make your decisions based upon biblical criteria. The Bible is a compass, not a map. All right. So it's giving you the guidelines for making those godly decisions. And those decisions are yours. And so you'll note that here Rick Warren is twisting the scriptures. So now, you know, I'm supposed to be chasing after these voices, uh, this voice of God. And I've, I've had to meet particular criteria to hear the voice of God. And now he's talking about some fellow who's confused. And I'm, I'd probably look at the fellow and go, that's your decision. Make a decision, a godly one, based upon the criteria given in scripture. That doesn't play games with his will. The Bible says you have not because what? You ask not. And you're taking that text out of context too. You ask not. Over 20 times in the New Testament, we are commanded to ask. Of course, that's what prayer is. It's humbly asking God. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. Over and over and over, we're commanded to ask. God never shuts his storehouse till you shut your mouth. What text says that? You have not 
because you ask not. You must believe that God wants to answer your questions. God is. Yeah, of course, I believe God is going to answer my questions. I don't believe God's going to answer my questions through an audible voice. More willing to talk to you than you are willing to listen. Uh, get, let me back that. What text says this? You have not because you ask not. You must believe that God wants to answer your questions. God is more willing to talk to you than you are willing to listen. Speak, Lord. I'm listening. And one of the keys is you must be specific. And I've learned this. So one of the keys is you must be specific. That the more specific my question is to God, and I often do this at night. Often, when I get ready to go to bed, I ask God a question. Lord, and I'll ask this question about my life, my ministry, my family, whatever. And then I go to sleep and I let the Holy Spirit work on my subconscious. And more times than not, I've woke awakened with a solution. Why? Because I was ra relaxed and God could speak to my heart. So you got to be relaxed in order for God to speak to your heart. It mostly happens when you're asleep, apparently. So how do you receive guidance from God? How do you hear the voice of God? Now, this is where we're going to end part one of our sermon review. I should have known. It's been, it's been a long time since I've done a sermon review and I can't. It's like, oh man, this is terrible. Okay, so uh, we'll pick up from here in part two of the sermon review. Uh, but I have to ask, I'm going to point one of our things here. Any sermon that engages in scripture twisting in order to create the false impression that the doctrine or doctrines taught in it is or are biblical, it's got to be rejected as containing false doctrine. And the pastor needs to be considered a false teacher, especially if a significant number of his sermons employ the same or similar scripture twisting tactics. Yeah. And I would say this, check the archives of the Fighting for the Faith podcast, type in Rick Warren, and um, you'll see that I've been, I have been showing and warning the church of Rick Warren's scripture twisting since the beginning of Fighting for the Faith 13 years ago. So, um, and I even began warning people about Rick Warren before I even was doing uh, Fighting for the Faith. This guy is demonically deceptive. Nothing that he says when he handles a biblical text is sound or solid. He is the master of twisting and manipulating God's word. And now we just caught him like adding words to the scriptures that are not there. Uh, so I got to ask a question. If uh, hearing the voice of God is a biblical doctrine, why didn't he just go to the clear text that say, say that? Huh? Why did he have to twist all this stuff up? So uh, stay tuned. We're, we're going to come back to uh, Rick Warren and uh, we will do a part two of this sermon and uh, even get uh, Brian Houston on the stage talking about how to test impressions and stuff like that. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Until next time, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.